0: This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hi there, Emergency Medical Minute crowd. This is Rachel, and today we're going to be presenting a podcast um, in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is October. Um, today we have two ladies with us that will be speaking to different topics associated with domestic violence, um, and I will let them go
2: ahead and introduce themselves. Amy? Amy? My name is Amy Farron. I'm a senior deputy district attorney in the Arapahoe County District Attorney's Office. I've been a prosecutor for a little over eight years, and in the last four to five years have been really focused on uh, prosecuting offenses involving sexual assault and domestic violence. And uh, recently, in the past two to three years, have very much focused on training Uh, medical professionals as well as law enforcement on mandatory reporting laws and other laws that relate to the reporting of domestic violence and sexual offenses.
0: I'm Katie Sprinkle. I'm an emergency physician. I work primarily at Medical Center of Aurora. I've been there about four years, and for the past two years, I've been the director for the SANE program, um, Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program, and so I work with that the, the sexual assault team, and we've also recently taken on the role of Forensic Nurse Examiner and broadened our scope a
1: bit. Thanks ladies, we're very lucky to have both of you with us today. Um, I wanted to start with Amy and just talking about um, defining the term mandatory reporting for us and just describe what this process looks like from a legal standpoint.
2: Thanks, Rachel. Mandatory reporting is a set of laws that require certain individuals, more often someone in a professional field, to report certain incidents to police or to the Department of Human Services. Um, The mandatory reporting laws also criminalize the failure to report when a professional has an obligation to do that, and I'll talk about those penalties a little bit later on. Um, The mandatory reporting laws, however, also protect the professional from any liability or claim that they shouldn't have released that information to either human services or law enforcement, so long as they're reporting um, in good faith and have reasonable cause to believe that they should comply with the law and report whatever it is that they're seeing.
1: Can you also talk about any of the state's um, rape and sexual assault reporting requirements for competent adult victims?
2: So there are a number of mandatory reporting laws in Colorado. I want to give you an overview before I jump into that specific topic. The general areas of mandatory reporting requirements that apply to medical professionals generally include three general areas. There are child abuse and neglect, um, and that's for a patient who is under 18 years of age, They are elder abuse or IDD victims, also known as intellectually and developmentally delayed victims. That generally is based more on either the age, if it's elder abuse, or their cognitive um, abilities, if it's an IDD situation. And then finally, there's this other carve-out that relates to uh, behavior that appears criminal in nature. And many medical professionals may recall this from some of their training, but these are the ideas of gunshot wounds, knife wounds, um, and and recently that also include uh, certain criminal acts, including domestic violence and sexual assault. So with that overview as to the Um, larger areas that are required or under the mandatory reporting laws in Colorado, I want to turn and talk a little bit as it relates specifically to sexual assault and uh, reporting for competent adult victims. Um, First of all, We opened this podcast talking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I think what's important to see is there's a significant overlap between sexual assault and domestic violence. And while I don't have the statistics in front of me, the majority of victims of sexual assault are a victim by an intimate partner. Um, It is the exception to the rule, what we see on television in the movies, that someone is sexually assaulted by a stranger or by the use of some sort of weapon or a violent threat. So that is why we are talking about both sexual assault and domestic violence. As it relates to sexual assault, when a licensee, a licensee under the statute is either a physician, a physician's assistant, or an, I'm going to say this wrong, an anesthesiologist in training or anesthesiologist assistant any of those three individuals are required to report certain acts of domestic violence, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. If, however, a nurse is also involved with that patient because a sexual assault exam is performed, that nurse also then has obligations as well. So let's talk about what that would look like. If a patient came into the hospital and had reported sexual assault, If it's an act of domestic violence, the physician, physician assistant, or anesthesiologist assistant would have a mandatory reporting obligation to report that to law enforcement. If a nurse became involved because they were doing a medical exam, they also may have obligations, depending on a number of circumstances, and I'm going to list them out for you now. First, if the victim comes in and is seeking a medical exam in addition to whatever medical treatment she is receiving, Um, the medical professional shall, with the consent of the victim, make one of the three following reports. The first is what's called a law enforcement report. This is where the victim is seeking a medical exam. There is evidence collection as part of that medical exam, and the victim chooses to speak to the police. The second type of report is called a medical report. This involves a medical exam, evidence collection associated with that medical exam, and the victim chooses not to speak to the police. The third is called an anonymous report. That involves a medical exam, evidence collection associated with that, but the victim wants to remain anonymous and does not want their name in any way to be released to law enforcement. All of these three types of reporting require medical professionals to notify law enforcement no matter what the victim's wish is, because that kit, that evidence that's collected, needs to get into law enforcement's possession. And we can talk a little bit about that later when we get to some of the evidence collection and chain of custody steps. If there is no sex assault exam or evidence collection associated with the report, maybe a victim just wants to be evaluated but doesn't want to do the same exam, doesn't want evidence collection, There is no requirement to report the sexual assault, with the exception of some domestic violence reporting that we'll talk about when we get to uh, some difficulties in interpreting the current state of mandatory reporting law.
1: And can you also speak to any of the current state statistics regarding sexual assault and reporting um, or surrounding domestic violence in Colorado?
2: I'm happy to do that, Rachel. Uh, Some of the statistics I was able to pull up came from what's called C-CASA, or the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. They are regularly involved in Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which occurs in April um, as compared to October, which is coming up for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And some of the statistics that that organization has been able to collect for the 2017 year um, are as follows. Um, One in two women and one in four men in Colorado have experienced sexually violent crimes in their lifetime. And again, the majority of those occur in the context of an intimate partner relationship. Studies show that one in four women and one in six men are sexually abused before the age of 18. Persons with disabilities uh, are sexually assaulted at a rate twice that of the general population. Um, And approximately 20 to 25% of women will be victims of sexual violence or attempted sexual violence during college. And then finally, um, over 50% of transgender individuals are survivors of sexual violence. So some really helpful statistics to help us sort of think about when we're seeing someone who's talking about sexual assault as a patient and when that person particularly is talking about that in the context of an intimate relationship.
1: Um, We're going to kind of switch gears and go over to Katie now. And um, Katie, can you please walk us through a sexual assault forensic exam and what that looks like in the hospital setting?
0: Sure. So... Uh, someone that comes in with sexual assault uh, would register in the ER just like any other patient and be brought back to a room where an emergency physician would see them and essentially assess for any injuries associated with the assault. So things like associated strangulation injuries that might require some imaging, um, treatment of pain and nausea, and then talking through medications that we uh, use standard uh, for prophylaxis. So things like prophylaxis for chlamydia and gonorrhea uh, for pregnancy, like Plan B. Um, we also uh, test for a pregnancy um, as a routine order. And then uh, to have a conversation about HIV prophylaxis and how to obtain those medications, um, which can be quite expensive, um, and there are some different ways to do that in places we refer to. Uh, and so that's kind of what happens in the first step with the emer- on the emergency room side. And so at that point, and uh, and we have to wait until the patient is able to consent for a, a SANE exam, but if they want to pursue a SANE exam and are uh, clinically sober in a way that um, they we can proceed and they can um, legally consent to, to go forward with the exam, the SANE nurse is called in from home. And so we have um, specially trained nurses that go through um, many, many, many hours of online and then some in-person training as well. Uh, about how to safely and uh, in a legally um, sustainable way collect evidence. Um, They go through the training, and then they um, sign up for call shifts. And most of these women, and we have a few OB uh, nurses, but a lot of them are full-time ER staff uh, that take on extra call shifts above and beyond their full-time schedule. And so they are called in from home, and this is often in, in the middle of the night, Um, to do these exams, and they will then take the exam, the patient to a, we have a a separate SANE exam room, which is, um, they've actually put a lot of um, effort and care into making it a more comfortable environment than the typical kind of sterile ER room, and at that point, they're going to go through the the history of the assault in great detail, and often write down in the patient's own words verbatim what happened. Um, and, and to that point, it's nice to remember that as, you know, maybe you're the triage nurse out front to remember that this patient is probably going to need to report their story many times to police, possibly to the ER physician. And then again, in great detail to the sane nurse. And so, um, keeping your questions very pertinent and kind of respecting how traumatic that can be to relive the event each time, um, is, is, is a good idea, um, in any case, the same nurse will go through the the entire history, take a detailed uh, physical exam, and that includes uh, a physical body diagram. And they will often uh, draw the injuries, lacerations, um, strangulation, or ligature marks, uh, petechiae, uh, and do a full body head-to-toe exam, and then proceed to the pelvic exam. So this is a fairly lengthy, very thorough exam. Um, And this is what these patients need, and and to be honest, probably don't often get in the ER setting, which is so fast-paced and quite busy. In the pelvic exam portion, we can talk through kind of the details of the kit and some of the tools they use, but they would document in detail, and often uh, we have a a forensic camera that we photograph uh, injuries as well. Um, and then at the end of the SANE exam, they talk through resources. And so, you know, say the patient elected not to do a, a kit, a SANE kit or evidence collection, but they could still, you know, get connected with all the resources that we can we can offer them. You know, often there's a victim's advocate already on scene from the police department. And then Blue Bench is a really uh, tremendous local organization that provides both, um, you know, real-time support. So they'll come to the ER in the middle. <coughs> excuse me, in the middle of the night, and help advocate and support for these victims. Uh, but they also are a great source for follow-up and counseling and support services, and even things like financial compensation for time missed from work, medical bills, etc. So they're, uh, you don't these victims don't end up paying for their their uh, bills associated with their assault.
1: Um, And so that's kind of the typical course. Thanks, Katie. Um, You sort of mentioned it, but can you describe the contents and process of collecting a sexual assault evidence kit?
0: Sure. So the um, sexual assault kit, uh, again, is not just focused on the pelvic exam, um, but is really a head-to-toe exam. So the kit contents, in, you know, the first step is to have the patient disrobe. And so there's a few sheets um, that you lie out on the ground. And the top layer of the sheet, as the patient disrobes and takes their clothing off, would capture any um, hairs or other um, whatever it is that falls out of the clothing and so that sheet is actually collected as evidence the clothing itself is also uh, collected and bagged and there's bags for that in the kit um, or envelopes there's also um, evidence collection bags to collect hairs and fibers um, they're uh, nail clippings. We used to do um, scrapings underneath the nail, but nail clippings have been shown to be more effective to collect um, s- skin or uh, debris from underneath victims' fingernails. There's also swabs to collect both the patient's DNA as well as any kind of body fluid uh, that the patient may have on them um, for DNA testing. There's a Foley bulb, uh, which is more useful for younger patients. <clears throat> There's a technique where you can inflate a Foley bulb inside a vaginal canal, and you kind of pull back and use traction, uh, and that stretches the hymen to allow for uh, inspection and visualization of hymenal injury in, in younger females. Um, that's often not, not as applicable um, for adults. Some seeing kits have colposcopes. Um, <clears throat> which are essentially microscopes to look at cervical injury. Uh, we personally have a fairly high-powered camera and a stand that we use uh, in, instead. Um, and there's also a uh, some dye that we use called, and I may n- mispronounce this, toluidine blue. And it essentially is a, a dye that highlights where the epidermal layer is absent in in areas of superficial injury where. Um, you know, an, an abrasion uh, or micro trauma might not be visible yet to the naked eye, but it's gonna the it has dye uptake, and so it's visible on the camera. And then there's also blood and urine um, collection um, uh, bags and cups uh, in order to send off for testing for like
1: drug facilitated assaults. Right, and then you alluded to it um, earlier, but can you speak to which healthcare professionals are qualified to perform a sane exam? And then what happens if a victim goes to a facility that does not have the appropriate services? Sure. So uh, sexual assault nurse examiners are specially trained
0: um, nurses typically, although physicians can certainly obtain the same training. For example, I know Children's Hospital has a few physicians that have undergone the training. Um, For the most part, at Aurora, at least, uh, they're nurses. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, if they go to a hospital or a facility where there's no sane on-call um, you know our sane nurses do go to any HCA facility, and so, in an effort to reduce the patient having to be transported, having longer wait times, having to repeat their story multiple times, um, our sane nurses will absolutely go to to other facilities like Swedish. PSL, North Subs, Sky Ridge, etc. Um, there are other uh, SANE programs in the area, University uh, and Denver Health are two of the other local programs. Um, however, you know, if the, if the victim does present to another facility outside of those staffed uh, hospitals, then they, are, they will often end up being transported, which which is difficult for the patient again they're going to have to repeat their story sometimes up to six times in an evening they've already been through an incredible amount of trauma and um, have an unimaginably long evening uh, behind them and so to transport to another facility possibly with someone they don't know or put in the back of a police car um, sometimes ends up in people just kind of throwing their hands up and and going home so we really try to minimize that if we can
1: All right, Katie, thanks for that explanation. Um, Can you describe some of the mental and physical health risks of a sexual assault um, for male or female?
0: Sure. So there's the obvious uh, traumatic injuries that can happen with any sexual assault, uh, including lacerations and contusions, and, and can lead to quite a bit of, of pain. Um, infections are certainly a big risk, and we try to uh, proactively treat that, uh, as we mentioned, including HIV. And that's something that I think uh, overall we're becoming more and more proactive with in terms of getting folks on HIV medication, um, other physical injuries, you know, a strangulation, I think there's a lot of unrecognized injury, and so um, certainly delayed effects of cervical vascular injury and, and even as, as severe as stroke symptoms are have been described and are, are certainly possible. Uh, In terms of psychologic uh, effects, I think those are much more complex and and difficult to treat even, Um, and so um, post-traumatic stress uh, disorders, um, depression, anxiety, um, and then all that woven into often a very complex social situation where someone may be um, unable to leave their current situation due to financial issues or or childcare or lack of support otherwise. Um, so, I think those are much more extensive and, and hard to deal with over the
1: long term. And then, within what amount of time is it suggested for a patient to report and have an exam done? I guess what I'm asking is when does the evidence disappear? Sure. So for it's a little bit different for
0: adults and, and adolescents. It's 150 hours and then 120 hours for pediatrics is when we can uh, legally perform the exam and collect evidence. Beyond that, it's, it's certainly recommended that they still be evaluated because there's a lot of things we can do in terms of treatment uh, and referrals and social support. Um, but in terms of strictly, when can we collect evidence? Yeah, 150 hours, adults; 120 for peds, for strangulation and domestic violence. Those those don't those time limits don't apply.
1: And then, what is the effect of intoxication on the sexual assault reporting process? So, a bit of a two party answer.
0: intoxication does affect um, someone's ability to consent for an exam. And so we can't proceed with an exam when someone is clinically intoxicated. And so they don't necessarily have to blow zero on a breath alcohol test, but they do need to be, in our judgment, clinically sober, understand the risk and benefit and what's involved in, in, in the pelvic exam and the evidence collection and be able to make that decision. And we make that type of um, decision all the time in the emergency room about clinical sobriety. Um, And we often use, you know, slurred speech, unsteady gait, things like that to gauge intoxication. And to be honest, a lot of these patients are intoxicated. Um, So the second part is that intoxication is a common part of sexual assault and it does not necessarily negatively affect the case. Um, substances ingested are are part of the history that we take down or that the same nurse is going to record and so being upfront about that's not a not a problem and that's something we we routinely do
1: all right thank you Katie Uh, I'm gonna go back to Amy now and just ask a related question here can you please describe to us the chain of custody for evidence gathered and how do you determine um, which PD to or police department to involve in these cases
2: So Rachel, you may recall earlier we talked about when a sexual assault medical exam is performed, that there are the three options for the victim. And the thrust behind that law, the either full report, the medical only report, or the anonymous report, was to encourage victims to be able to get the medical exam without putting pressure on them to require them to participate in law enforcement if they're not ready to do that yet. But we didn't want to punish those victims by saying, well, your kit then is going to go into the trash or is not otherwise going to be tested or analyzed with the idea that a victim later could change their mind and say I do want to participate or I don't want to participate. So those three um, reporting options do require the um, sane nurse or the doctor who's um, performed the exam to provide that kit to law enforcement. The first two are pretty straightforward. Once you have gone through all the steps and collected all the appropriate evidence based on the information you've been provided as part of the sex assault exam, either at that point or before, you can call the law enforcement agency where you believe the assault occurred. So if you called the local law enforcement agency, the first question they're going to ask you is, where did the sex assault occur? So one of the things you need to talk with the victim about is, did this happen at home or somewhere else, and figure out what town, city, or county did that occur in. That should be your call to that local agency. If you don't know or the victim can't say, then you can call the local law enforcement agency. And if it's an anonymous report, you can always call the local law enforcement agency um, because in that type of situation, you won't be providing a name and you won't be providing an address. And so it wouldn't make any sense to call the um, Adams County Sheriff when, in fact, you're in Aurora. You should call the Aurora Police Department and they should collect that kit assign an anonymous identification number, the kit then goes to their evidence collection process and later sent off to CBI, the Colorado Bureau, Bureau of Investigation, for testing under an anonymous number. And the victim is required to be provided that anonymous number by the sex assault nurse examiner. Any kit, whether it's collected under any of these three reporting options, is taken to the local law enforcement agency and then sent off to CBI, and CBI does the testing of the kit automatically. There is not a wait or a process where they wait for a victim to decide that she wants to participate with law enforcement.
1: And one question specifically around anonymous reporting, is there a time window within which the victim is required to choose to press charges versus is is there a time when
2: that um, right expires for that victim? The right for the victim does not expire. Um, And the laws in Colorado allow sexual assaults to be prosecuted years, even decades, depending on the facts, after the event occurred. So a victim can choose to... um, change her mind, so to speak, days after the medical exam, weeks, or even years, and still report that to law enforcement. That kit and the evidence associated with it is required to be kept for a very long time.
1: All right. Thank you. Um, We're going to switch gears a little bit and talk um, about domestic violence. And you spoke earlier, Amy, about mandatory reporting. Can you speak to mandatory reporting regarding domestic violence
2: reporting laws? I'd be happy to, Rachel. Um, I spoke earlier about sexual assault mandatory reporting and how that process looks. Let's talk a little bit about domestic violence, and I believe we'll get to sort of the overlap and some conflicts between those two laws. The reporting laws that relate to domestic violence fall under the same law that requires medical professionals, doctors, physicians, and anesthesiologists, assistants in particular, to report. Gunshot wounds or firearm discharge injuries, knife wounds or sharp injuries. And there's a carve-out at the bottom of that statute or sort of a catch-all that says any other injury that the medical professional believes is associated with a criminal act, including domestic violence. There has been a change in the law this year, 2017, and so I'm going to talk to you about the change and not the old law because it is effective going forward. The change in the law has set has basically said that in certain circumstances medical professionals are required to report domestic violence but not all and it is optional to report domestic violence in the majority of the cases so the times that medical professionals are required to report domestic violence include if there is a gunshot wound or an injury bullet wound uh i think uh Burn mark is is another way that that's listed. Those sort of injuries associated with domestic violence are required to be reported. Uh, Knife wound, intentional knife wound associated with domestic violence is required to be reported. And if the uh, physician concludes there is serious bodily injury, that is also required to be reported. Any other description of domestic violence is optional at the election of the uh, medical professional Either way, the law requires the medical professional to do two things. If the medical professional declines to report the act of domestic violence, the victim's request, meaning their request to not report or to keep it confidential or keep it secret, should be documented in the medical record. Um, I said should, I think the statute says shall, so that means required. Additionally, the medical professional shall provide resources. And Katie spoke to some of those resources that are available to victims of either domestic violence or sexual violence.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about when you have a case that is mixed between a sexual assault and domestic violence, and when maybe some of these laws are not as straightforward about what is mandatory and what is not? I'd be happy to, Rachel.
2: So um, those of you who are listening closely may have already been thinking, wait a minute, if I'm required to report a sexual assault, assuming the victim consents and it's domestic violence, why isn't sexual assault on the list of crimes that's a mandatory report under domestic violence? And what that means is the law, unfortunately, is unclear on this question. There is a law that very clearly governs an act of domestic violence. There's a law that very clearly governs a report of sexual assault but it's unclear what happens if your victim comes in and is reporting sexual assault as an act of domestic violence. Let me give you a tangible example to sort of work through the conflict here in the law. If a victim came in, and I apologize if I keep saying she or referring to female victims, anyone can be a victim of domestic violence and sexual violence. It just turns out the overwhelming majority are female. If a victim comes to the hospital and she reports that she was sexually assaulted by an intimate partner, her husband for example, and she also has a knife wound because during that he used a knife and he harmed her. physician um, immediately reviewing or immediately treating that victim would have a mandatory requirement to report because of that intentional knife wound that they are seeing. However, if during the course of the treatment the physician and then the sex assault nurse examiner learn that the victim does not want to report, wants the medical exam, wants the evidence collection, but says, I want to be anonymous, I do not want this to go forward, we now have a conflict in the law, One part of the law says that intentional knife wound as an act of domestic violence is a mandatory report. And one part of the law says medical professionals must honor the victim's request to remain anonymous and cannot provide her name to law enforcement. And unfortunately, that question remains unanswered in my interpretation of the statutes, even with the most recent change in 2017. Let's use a slightly different example. If a victim comes in to the hospital and is reporting that she was beat up by her boyfriend and also sexually assaulted and does want to participate in the sexual assault process. Being beat up as an act of domestic violence is an optional report by the medical professional. They're not required to. They can decide to based on their professional judgment and some of the considerations that Katie has talked about in the overall treatment of that patient. But if that same victim says, I want to participate in the medical exam, I want to participate in evidence collection, and is consenting to a mandatory report, then there may be more of an obligation by the same nurse and the medical professional to report. And again, it's not entirely clear. Then I'm gonna add one more hiccup to all of this. I talked earlier about the three reporting requirements if someone is reporting sexual assault and is participating in the medical exam and evidence collection. Recall that the medical exam plus evidence collection is what triggers the mandatory reporting requirements. If a victim says, I don't want the medical exam or I don't want the evidence collection, there is no mandatory reporting requirement for sexual assault so long as it doesn't fall under those DV requirements we already talked about. There's one more layer to that. And the law says the medical professional or sex assault nurse examiner shall report with the victim's consent if the victim wants that medical exam plus evidence collection. So we have an additional layer of what if the victim doesn't consent to the report but still wants all this evidence collection. And again, that question is unanswered by the law.
1: So, Amy, can you talk a little bit about once a report is made, what that report looks like, what are the components of that police report, um, and then what is done with that report moving forward if um, the victim does decide to pursue a case?
2: Sure. So most of the mandatory reporting laws in Colorado allow the professional to report either to the Department of the hum- Human Services or uh, law enforcement. For example, with child abuse and neglect, you can report to either However, that's not true for all mandatory reporting. Elder and IDD abuse is a different standard. It's probably safest to think about reporting to law enforcement. You can always report to law enforcement. In some circumstances, a report to the Department of Human Services is sufficient. When you make that report, And I'm going to explain both ways. When you call human services, there's normally a hotline, especially if it's related to child abuse and neglect, but there can be for all types of reports. You will talk to the person on the phone, explain who you are and why you're reporting, and they will take all of that information down. A permanent caseworker, days or weeks later, may follow up with you, but that's often unlikely. Normally, they don't need to um, extensively interview the reporting individual. If you report to the police, you can call the non-emergency line. You don't need to call 911, um, especially because more often than not, this is a cold report, meaning the person is currently safe and the crime is not currently happening in the hospital. Um, And when you call, you have to explain who you are and why you're reporting. The dispatcher, the person on the other end of the call, will ask you some of the questions we've already talked about. Where did this happen? What's the nature of the facts that you have? And they will... um, assign an officer to respond to that call. It may be an officer that's already assigned in the hospital, it may be an officer that's responding to the hospital. That officer may call you to get the information directly or they may follow up in person. If you report to the police, it is reasonable and normal to expect that you probably will be interviewed again later, either in person by the officer who responds to the hospital, or later a detective may call you or someone from the district attorney's office may call you to make sure they have all the information that you had that was the basis of your mandatory report. That should be it. Aside from the possibility that you may be asked to testify as a witness months or even years later, if the case proceeds to trial, that should be the extent of your involvement as it relates to a mandatory report. You had also asked a second piece about what does that mean for the victim or the process going forward, Once you have provided the mandatory report, particularly if it's a situation where it's not that anonymous report of a sexual assault, so let's assume it's a situation where you are providing the name and the information about what happened and you expect law enforcement to follow up with the victim. More often than not, they will try to speak with the victim in the hospital. I would say probably more than 99% of the time, they will speak with the victim in the hospital and then may follow up with the victim going forward, depending on the extent of the allegations, the seriousness of the injuries, and things of that nature.
1: All right. Thank you, ladies, for your time spent with us today. Do either of you have any closing thoughts for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I I wanted to just um mention the fact that that uh I think these patients overall are sometimes uh really difficult to deal with and they're not always ultra forthcoming or warm or asking for help in obvious ways and um, sometimes I think it's just helpful to keep in mind that the situations that they're coming from for instance sex trafficking victims are often heavily addicted to multiple substances, are quite demanding, may not, may be very resistant to to getting help, and are, are sometimes very difficult to deal with. But these are the people that we are there for, and these are the people that really need us the most. Because if we don't advocate for them, uh, really, they are going to completely fall out of the system. So, I think um, trying to withhold judgment and and realize, gosh, we really don't know what's going on at home with this domestic violence situation. uh, almost guaranteed to be more complex than we can appreciate in our in our interaction um, and to try to support these men and women uh, as best we can um, and do what they 'll allow or what they 're ready for and kind of meet them meet them where they are um, in in this process statistically, most people are not going to maybe accept help or leave their situation um, on the first try. And so trying to <clears throat> just be supportive, withhold judgment, and be ultra patient
1: because, um, yeah, these are these are the people that we're there to serve. All right. Well, that wraps up our podcast um, in honor of October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, thanks for listening.